societies need to take their time to evolve out of conflict. And what is important during that period is to have this inclusive politics where power sharing is acceptable to all. And we've seen again and again, actually, academic evidence showing how many countries went back to conflict as soon as there is elections in the horizon, because where the checks and balances are not in place and the culture is not in place. It's a one-time election. It's one man, one vote once. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Recent attacks on Red Sea shipping by Yemeni rebels have put the country back into the spotlight. In the last two decades, Yemen has lurched between moments of optimism and despair. To explore Yemen's future, I speak with Rafat al-Akhali, a Yemeni who went from being an exchange student in Canada to being a youth activist, then a government minister, and then a development consultant. Together, we look at where Yemen has been and where it's going. Then I continue the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert to explore the problem of brain drain and how it affects conflict-affected societies. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Rafat al-Akhali is convener of the Council on State Fragility at Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government and an economic development consultant. He was a leader of the youth movement that helped usher in Yemen's transitional government in 2012, and he was Yemen's Minister of Youth and Sports from 2014 to 2015. Rafat, welcome to Babel. Thanks, John. A pleasure to be here with you. So for people who haven't really been following Yemen, except suddenly they realize that there's something happening with the Houthis in the Red Sea, what's your snapshot very briefly of the context that people have to understand about what's happening in Yemen right now? Maybe the the important context to keep in mind is the multi-layer nature of the conflict that is ongoing. So there's a local dynamic which has multiple groups, which started in 2014 when the Houthi levels took control of the capital, Sana'a. And since then, that local dynamic, that local civil war, in essence, has evolved and multiple local groups have emerged and different lines of fighting and lines of conflict is there on the ground now. So that's one level. The other level is more regional level. When back in 2015, an Arab coalition led by Saudi Arabia joined to support the internationally recognized government. And Saudi Arabia and UAE play a key role there. And of course, there's a support by Iran to the Houthi rebels. So that's the regional dynamic. And of course, internationally, you know, whether it's the US and the UK or others who have either supported the internationally recognized government or supported Saudi and UAE in their efforts. And now, as we see, and as you just mentioned, you know, with the conflict moving into impacting international maritime, we see more and more internationalization of this conflict. So that's, I think, what is important to keep in mind is that this has been going on for a while. It hasn't started in 2014 either, you know, but 2011 before that and 2002, when the initial wars with the Houthi rebels in Sada in the north of the country started, and there were six wars that took place between 2002 and 2008. And before that, you know, 1994, a civil war between the north and the south, 
which now is, has its own reflections in the situation. So it's a long history going back at least to the 60s and can be traced through these cycles of conflict to where we are today. So let, let me start by going back 20 years. As you said, the Houthi battle with the central government really began about 2002. About 20 years ago, you went to Canada on a scholarship. You were thinking that you were going to learn how to do technical things. What did you think you'd learn? And what did you learn that you didn't think you'd learn when you left Yemen 20 years ago? You're right. 2002 was the same year that I started my university in, in Canada. And I went there to study IT, specifically computer engineering. And that's what I thought I would learn. But as soon as I got to Canada, I got to be more involved with student life, student activism, student associations. And so I learned much more on that side than I expected when I first left Yemen. And that got me to really think about how much Yemeni youth are missing in this kind of, you know, university life and also the learning that can happen when multiple people from different places come together. Because I was very interested and joined a lot of these regional conferences and international conferences. So I, I learned a lot and I wanted to make sure that I also take that opportunity back to some of the Yemeni youth. And then you went back to Yemen. You worked in Canada for a while, but you went back to Yemen. There was a student movement that was starting. You became a youth activist. What was that like? I was lucky enough to be able to go back to Yemen every summer during my studies in, in Canada. And in 2004, I go back to Yemen and, and we started this big youth development conference. And we tried to bring together young people from across the country and get them together for a week, taking different team building skills, leadership skills. But then we still didn't have the political space, I would say. It was still very dominated by political security forces. There wasn't as much freedom for such movements to take place. Of course, things evolved in Yemen and we evolved with it. I was later involved at the end of 2009 in setting up uh, another youth movement, and we called it Resonate Yemen, to try and get Yemeni youth voices into the discourse on terrorism. And out of that, we thought that we will try and continue this very long-term, back then we thought it would be a long-term effort to mobilize youth voices, to convince public policymakers in Yemen that they should listen to youth. We started that off in 2010. And then the Arab Spring started in 2011, and we suddenly moved from a point where there was a lot of disengagement from youth, not feeling that they can contribute or influence or do anything related to public policy or politics. And then suddenly in 2011, as I said, everyone was interested. Oh. And so we kind of fast forwarded our initial plan, which was, you know, in a decade to get to that point. And now everything was happening right there. And it was such a time of hope and everyone was so engaged. And so we continued that, but I then transitioned to the government side. There was so much to influence and so much to have impact working on the inside after having worked from the outside trying to influence the system for very long. And so I felt that I would be in a good position to try and do that. So I, I went to back to university again, <laughs> did another master's this time in public policy, and I transitioned and joined the government. Was your experience serving in government very different from what you had expected? It was. I think it was very shocking in a way to see two things. One, On one end, the inefficiencies in the system, 
And the very basics were not even there. I mean, the civil service in Yemen is very weak through decades of not focusing on really building a strong civil service. So what ends up happening is that the bureaucracy is not there. The machine is not there. And I always remember that when we did the, the public policy masters, the vision thought is that the minister comes in and decides where the direction is based on their political party platform or what they got elected on. And then the machine works and the ship sails in this new direction. But in Yemen and countries like Yemen, you come in and you say, this is the new direction. Nothing happens. <laughs> There's no machine that works to steer the ship in the new direction. There's very little capacity. There's very little understanding of what the purpose is. So that was that was one area. On the other side, I really saw what got me to join the government to begin with, the impact that could happen, the huge resources that the public sector has. And how with very little reforms or very little actions, you can steer those resources to make a huge impact that I would have spent years and years trying to do from the civil society organizations or outside the public sector system. Well, now you're working at an even higher level with the Council on State Fragility, with a lot of people who've been in government leadership positions in government from around the world. What is the paradigm that you're trying to shift through this Council on State Fragility? The challenges that face Yemen, but not only Yemen, but countries like Yemen, so fragile and conflict-affected states, as they are called. And then to start seeing the similarities, the differences, and try to understand, you know, what is the approach towards addressing fragility and how can we make it better? We had a big commission and worked for a couple of years gathering evidence from academia, but also from practitioners on the ground. And where we got to is the need to build these inclusive politics, as we call it, you know, beyond elections or democracy defined as electoral democracy. And I think we see it right now in Yemen, and we continue to see it in many countries. The traditional approach is for any country to quickly move out of any conflict into elections. So this is always the push. And this is what we had in Yemen as well. We had a transitional period of two years. In those two years, we were supposed to have a national dialogue bringing all Yemenis together and come up with a, a new form of state, basically, and put that into a constitution and take that constitution into referendum and then have elections all within two years. But we saw that not only in Yemen, we, we see it in different countries, we see it in different visions and plans that the UN and the international system comes up with. So I think that's the main paradigm shift that we on the political side were trying to advocate for, is that countries, societies need to take their time to evolve out of conflict. And what is important during that period is to have this inclusive politics where power sharing is acceptable to all. And we've seen again and again, actually, academic evidence showing how many countries went back to conflict as soon as there is elections in the horizon, because where the checks and balances are not in place and the culture is not in place. It's a one-time election. It's one man, one vote once. And all the other parties know that, you know, if they're out, they're out for good and they'll be destroyed by, by the other opponents. You've written movingly about some of the economic consequences of this conflict, which has stretched on for years. As you think about the broader work you've done with the Council on State Fragility and the need for more inclusive economics, more inclusive politics, 
how do you align that with a need for getting the guys with the guns to lay down the guns? There is an instinct, and it's been criticized recently in, in some academic literature. We've talked about it on Babel. People who say, well, you shouldn't just be buying off the warlords. You have to be thinking longer term. But how do you think longer term if the warlords are still fighting and still getting people to fight on their behalf? Absolutely. I think that's probably a big gap in the approach towards protracted conflicts like the one in Yemen, because it feels like the international approach and specifically the UN system approach does not give enough priority to addressing the economic aspects of the conflict itself. And there's strong mobilization on humanitarian response, and the UN knows how to do that, and the world knows how to kind of respond to that. But there's one aspect that is the economic-related issues of the conflict. So conflict over the central bank, for example, which has been a major thing in Libya, in Yemen, in other countries as well. Also conflict on the commanding heights of the economy, right? the telecom sector, oil and gas, and all that. These are, of course, political conflicts, but they manifest themselves on economic issues. And so we always try to highlight that the conflict is about attempts to control both you know, get the power and get the wealth. So power is on one hand and wealth comes with it and the resources of the wealth. That area is not always paid attention to. You know, a lot of the resources deployed are people who can talk about security and military, you know, security sector reforms, military sector, ceasefires, demobilization, all that. And they can also talk about the politics, you know, how do we share power and what do you get in the cabinet and how can we get into a ceasefire and a political process? But not enough people who are able to talk about the economic dimensions of the political conflict. And that's what we have seen. And that's we address that in our work and on the Fragility Council and Commission. But also we've done a lot of work on this in Yemen. But it starts with like having that platform or that space for these issues within the process. So what we have been asking for is to have that structure in place. So having an economic track where these issues can be put on the table. Of course, it will start with some of the very urgent issues, you know, oh, the port needs to be open and we need to have road access so goods can flow and people can move. And, you know, we have to address the currency division that we have now, the central bank. But then eventually, you know, having that structure in place, having the right people there will allow evolving into addressing some of the medium and longer term issues and thinking more widely about what does Yemen need to be sustainable economically and how can we both create an efficient and self-sufficient economy, but also integrate into the region and integrate internationally. And I think that's the key area where a lot of work is still needed. You've written a lot and I think really persuasively about some very micro-local projects in Yemen. So getting back to the micro level, what kinds of economic projects are also peace-building projects? How do you structure an economic project to be a peace-building project if you don't have this international aspect to muck things up? Absolutely. I think that's probably what gives me a lot of hope and still gives me enough energy to push forward is seeing what is happening at the more local level at the city levels, at the provincial or governorate level, we call it governorates in Yemen. And when you see what's happening there, you realize there's a different story to what the big 
international headlines would focus on. But when you go on the ground in the different provinces, you see, as I said, first of all, a very different reality from one governorate to another. Some governorates have achieved remarkable development during the conflict, such as Marib, for example. Marib is a big example of that because it has been a smaller province, but a rich smaller province, around 300 to 400,000 in population. We had the main electricity power station in Marib. It was powered by natural gas. And it was feed in all of Yemen, but Marib had no public electricity. So they were always seeing, you know, the cables and the electricity lines over their heads, but had no electricity there. And it was also the source of oil. So when the conflict started, what happened is that they benefited from their resources and they were able to use much more of those resources that was initially going to the central government. So you see a lot of development in Marib. And a lot of emigration to Marib from other parts of Yemen. Exactly. I was going to say there's IDPs, of course, in the camps, but in Marib as well. So now the estimates is that there's around 2 million plus in Marib. There's huge growth that took place, but you see new roads, new hospitals, new clinics, new schools, big malls, big restaurants opening up. And so you see a different dynamic there. Similarly, in Taiz, where, of course, the biggest headline has always been the siege on Taiz. And the Houthis have been blocking all the main road access to Taiz, and it has caused a significant humanitarian impact in Taiz. But still, when you get to the city, you see, you know, the markets are buzzing, there's new hotels, there's new businesses coming up. And this mainly took place when the violent confrontations stopped. So we have practically been in a ceasefire, of course, since April of last year. But even before that, in many of the battlefronts, there has been an informal or unofficial ceasefire. And that allowed some normalcy to come back. And so now that's what I try at least personally to focus more on is how can we help these local communities to just get back on their feet, get back to the cycle of productivity, of jobs, get out of the trap of humanitarian relief. So it's this delicate balance of how do you now gradually transition from that into a more sustainable economic productivity in the country. And it's all going to happen at the local level. How do you make it attractive for talented Yemenis to stay in Yemen? There has been a lot of talented Yemenis like yourself who are largely outside the country now. How do you transition from a place where the talented people feel they need to live overseas, the only place they have a chance for them and their kids, to where people want to really invest their future in Yemen? I think this is probably the biggest challenge that we have and will continue to be having. It is really felt, this brain drain, and you can see it in all sectors. Any Yemeni talented with some skills and some experience who was able to leave the country has already left the country. There's only very few who stayed either because they could not get any chance to leave or because of family reasons and personal reasons. So now every time we try to find qualified people for any opportunity in any sector, it has become very, very difficult. I remember I was having a conversation with the construction sector, with a number of private sector companies there. And they were telling me how the sector was built over decades to get into the point that they were at in 2010. They had enough of the engineers and the labor force. And now they said maybe 80% or more have moved on. They have left the country. So now every time they try to work on any project, 
they have to really struggle to try and find the labor force. It's no longer there. Of course, in the government sector, it's a big challenge where very few people can be hired there. So I'm not sure we have the answer, to be honest. It's a huge challenge. We know it will continue to be a challenge. We need to figure out how to work with the people that are still in the country to upskill them to the level that is needed, especially if we get into a recovery, reconstruction phase. And also, how do we ensure that we still engage one way or another with the expat community that has left Yemen, even if they're not going to come back to live and work in Yemen, at least, you know, to be willing to go back, you know, a few times a year and contribute somehow or, you know, contribute from where they are in whichever field. So let me close with another big question that I'm not sure there's a good answer to, but maybe you have a better answer than I do. And that is when there are security problems in Yemen, the world starts really caring about Yemen. When there aren't security problems in Yemen, the world stops caring about Yemen. And then there's security problems in Yemen. The world starts caring again. I certainly know American ambassadors who said the only way I could get anybody's attention was through counterterrorism. But counterterrorism distorts the prism through which people see Yemen. How do you think we can get out of that cycle? Absolutely. And Yemen is not high on the agenda of any of the major world powers. If there's anything just from the purely again, geopolitical calculations, I don't think that Yemen will move to become high up on the strategic agenda of any of the major world powers. And so most likely, I think the possible way forward is to try and figure out how to better integrate regionally. And this is, I think, an area where we can still do a lot of work on. Yemen has not been part of the Gulf Cooperation Council, for example, which has all the Gulf countries in it for various reasons. But I've heard from many of my Gulf friends and analysts that they think if Yemen was part of it, maybe we wouldn't have got to this point. And today, again, these same points and same discussions are on the table. How can Yemen be better integrated with the region? How can we ensure a country which is large compared to the rest of the regional countries can not only be part, but kind of integrate with like Vision 2030 in Saudi or, or the other vision so we can look at the region as a whole. And I think that's where the challenge is. And unless we can figure out how to do that, it's very difficult to think that Yemen will integrate with the EU or whether trade or aid or any of that, it will not be a major recipient or a major partner for the EU or the US or anyone else. Well, and certainly one of the problems in the region is there's been a lot of engagement by Saudi Arabia, a lot of engagement by the United Arab Emirates, a lot of engagement by Iran. And rather than leading to Yemen's peaceful integration in the region, it's helped contribute to violence in Yemen that's driven exactly the same cycles we've been talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think, at least that's my own opinion, that the engagement was not based on what I just mentioned. You know, it was not with that objective in mind or with that direction in mind. The engagement was more, how do we deal with the threat out of Yemen? How do we try to contain things in Yemen? How do we try to manage the politics or by the political elites or do any of that? And of course, for Iran, how do we establish some power in the vicinity of Saudi? So I don't think that the approach of looking more on the positive side and looking how do we actually you know, get to win-win regional integrations where we can move Yemen away from the current situation and from the challenge 
the demographic challenge and the poverty that is in place with very high levels of population density and also a very young population. And so unless we can create jobs, unless we can get people to work, there will always be this instability in the country, which will spill over to the region. So let me ask an unfair question. I'm partly putting your Levotnik School of Government hat on. Is the answer to this, the region has to think of a better way to deal with Yemen? Or is the answer you need a Yemeni leadership that has a better vision for how it engages in the region? Obviously, the two need to be related. But where would you put the emphasis? Is it on Yemeni leadership shaping its relationship to the region or the region figuring out how it's going to finally do something constructive instead of destructive with Yemen? I would put the emphasis definitely on the Yemeni leadership. I always think that it all starts with the leadership in the country itself. There's very little that can be either imposed on any country, but if it doesn't come from inside and from the political leadership and political elite that are there, it's very difficult to see a way out. And I think every country in the region will look for their own interests, will look for what they believe is best for their people. And only Yemenis and only the Yemeni leadership can and should do that for their own people. And so I would put the emphasis there. Now, I always say that the biggest challenge we have in Yemen is a leadership crisis, unfortunately, where we haven't had that type of leadership in the country for a very long time. And we hope that with time, maybe in the coming years, we can actually see better leadership in Yemen that can then, as you mentioned, work with the region, with the world internationally to get Yemen to a better place. Rafat al-Akhali, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much. During the interview, Rafat talks about the brain drain, or the emigration of highly skilled and educated workers from a particular country. Although he was talking specifically about Yemen, this phenomenon is prevalent throughout the region. What are the advantages and disadvantages of this type of labor mobility? One of the advantages is your most talented people network with other people, learn things. I mean, this is what Silicon Valley is all about. It's what people come to cities in the United States to do is you work with other superb people and you pick up skills and you pick up relationships and then you can take them back if you go back to wherever you came from. And I think this is one of the challenges for Yemen is they have to find a way to make it more attractive for people with skills to live there than in places where they likely can make more money and at least in the near term, have more security than they do back in Yemen. Certainly there's a draw that people want to be with their families. They want to be where they're culturally comfortable, where they can have the foods they like and the places they like to be, all those things. But I think especially for people thinking about their own families and their own family's future, it's hard to get people to go back to a place if they come to feel that there is no future for their children in that place. Yeah, having labor mobility allows people to take advantage of the skills that they have. There might be opportunities for Yemenis in Egypt or London or wherever that there just aren't in Yemen. But I would say I think there are economic benefits, even if they don't go back. Certainly, Rafat mentioned remittances, and that's a huge part of the economies of many conflict-affected states and non-conflict-affected states as well, places like Egypt. 
But I do think there is something to be said for the role that diaspora communities can play in the integration piece. If you have business people who are from diaspora communities, they may be more attuned to opportunities that exist in their countries of origin, and they might be able to set up relationships there that other business people just would never really think of. And certainly in Yemen, there was a time when some Yemeni expatriates were involved building a coffee business in Yemen. So it's, there is that, that ability to be a bridge, both from within the country or from outside the country reaching back. Of course, the challenge, though, is, as Rafat said, ultimately, at one point, you need really talented people to rebuild the country, to drive the economy. And if a really large portion of your most talented workforce is abroad, even if they maintain connections, it's going to be more difficult to do all of those things. And he had talked about that even in terms of the current government capacity to do things. You have people on the payroll. But finding people in the government who can execute the things the government is trying to do is hard. And that makes it hard for the government with all of its resources, with all of its ability to marshal resources, its ability to implement is weaker unless you have the human capital. And what he said is a lot of the human capital is, is drifting overseas. Yeah, there clearly are these advantages and disadvantages. But ultimately, the question is, do you think well-paying jobs in, let's say, the Gulf are helping or hurting a country like Yemen? Well, I think it's something like 2 million Yemenis live in Saudi Arabia, although I don't think we know the exact figures because I, I don't think the Saudi government has released them. But remittances from Saudi Arabia to Yemen are very important and historically have been very important going back decades. So clearly, Yemenis benefit in a lot of ways from being able to take these jobs in Gulf states. That's getting a bit harder, I think, as a lot of GCC states are undertaking these nationalization strategies to get their own citizens to play a bigger part of the workforce, that there's going to be more pressure on many of these migrant workers. And of course, as well, many migrant workers do so in a temporary status and don't have all of the rights to be able to take full advantage of the skills that they have. So they might be quite restricted in terms of the jobs that they can access there. But ultimately, I think it is it's a positive thing for Yemen's economy, at least, that Yemenis are able to make a living in, in Saudi Arabia. When I was in Yemen in 1992, a lot of Yemenis had been working in Saudi Arabia, were pushed out over the Yemeni government's position in the 1991 Gulf War. And they took their earnings from Saudi Arabia and bought Toyota Land Cruisers and were going to get started in tourism business. You know, one of the challenges is if you have this money flowing out of a place like Saudi Arabia, a place like the UAE, going into Yemen, you also have to have businesses in Yemen that you can invest in. And that requires there to be some level of, of capacity in the country. I think a lot of the People working in a place like Saudi Arabia, a place like the UAE, oftentimes working in construction. So picking up some skills, it could well play out to the advantage of the Yemenis, but ultimately the Yemeni government has to find ways, whatever that government is, the Yemeni government has to find ways to get Yemenis comfortable investing there 
And that's partly about your ability to execute. And it's partly about your confidence in the future. Maybe that partly incentivizes them to think long-term, but it also in the near term makes it harder to bring those people back and, and bring the dollars back where it's actually investing in the country rather than just sustaining people, paying people at survival rates, but ultimately not really creating a different kind of Yemen. And certainly one of the fears that I think people have to have is that Yemen continues to merely limp along, that Yemenis are on survival wages from overseas. There's increasing pressure to absorb Yemenis, to keep the country from falling deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. But young workers are never actually in the country. This is part of what's been happening in Central America. This is a huge push for younger people from Central America to, to work in other places, principally in the United States. And the cities are full of young people and old people, and the entire workforce has left. Yeah, I'm not sure any government, let alone the Yemeni government, has really found a way to incentivize their labor force to return. How does the brain drain in Yemen compare to the brain drain occurring in other Middle Eastern states? I don't really know. I think in some ways, as I said, most Yemenis who are working overseas are not highly trained, but there certainly have been efforts to build out people in the universities and to create more of a talent base. And as Afad said, a lot of those people have left if they could leave. I think Libya has a similar situation where a lot of Libyans feel it's hard to be there. Although recently, Will and I met with a Libyan family in the Gulf who said, yeah, things actually in Libya are getting much better. And I think Libya has never felt the level of deprivation that Yemen has. It's always been wealthier, at least for the last 50 years, it's been wealthier with oil wealth. Lebanon has sort of accommodated to brain drain over the last 150 years. And there are more Lebanese citizens outside of Lebanon than inside of Lebanon. They come back for summers. They send money back. But Lebanon has really accommodated itself. The other thing you could say, of course, is Lebanon is hardly a poster child for success right now. Mm. And it may be that all of these coping mechanisms have contributed to the problems that Lebanon has and Lebanon has had over the years with sectarian violence and other things. And certainly there are different sectarian tensions in Yemen, tribal tensions in Yemen. But it feels like you can imagine a way forward for Yemen and you could imagine a way that Yemen could overcome its current challenges. But it does require people having some confidence in the future. And it's been a long time since I spoke to a Yemeni who felt like there was a lot of confidence in the future. Another interesting piece to this is the role that the diaspora plays in the politics of the country. I think when you look at a place like Lebanon, you have a Lebanese diaspora that is really very well networked. There are various organizations that exist to advance the interests of the Lebanese diaspora. There's one here in Washington, the American Task Force on Lebanon, which engages at quite a high level on politics and really tries to shape US policy or at least inform it on Lebanon. I'm not sure that that exists to the same extent with Yemen. I'm not familiar with an organization that is as influential as many of the Palestinian diaspora organizations or the Lebanese. And 
I don't know exactly why that is. Politics in Yemen are different, right? I mean, Yemen has had essentially one party and a lot of the decisions have been made very much behind closed doors. I don't know of a country where tribal politics are really quite active in the diaspora, but tribal politics have a large explanatory power in the politics of Yemen. We could get to a point in the longer term future where you can imagine Yemen having a different kind of politics. But in many ways, in the 90s, people thought Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president of Yemen, was really leading the country toward more transparent politics, more consultative government. And it turned out it was becoming much more one-man rule, much more closed. And it's partly the closed nature of Yemeni politics, which have made Yemen unravel so completely because you just didn't have much of a safety net to absorb shocks to the system. So maybe then there is some hope that now that the politics as messy as they are in Yemen are much more diverse, maybe then there is some hope that diaspora groups can start to come together and try to, you know, some of these very highly educated people who are living abroad, maybe they can try to influence the trajectory, both economically, as we were discussing earlier, but also to some degree politically, providing new ideas and Rafat is doing that. And when I was in Yemen in 2008 or 2009, I got the discomforting sense that the only people, the only career choice really in Yemen at that time was in the security field. You either provided security or you were depriving security, you were threatening. The tribal rulers were on retainers from businesses that had to operate. And it really felt like the only viable business in the country was a security business. And if you got security, you didn't have to actually pay the security guards. It was like protection money. That fundamental problem, untangling the security and economic problem, so people can really be productive, people can really make things, create services, rather than just on the one hand, stand with a gun outside of a building or not even show up, but be on the payroll. To me, that's the vital problem. Yemen is not very well situated, partly because the water table is dropping. It's made more complicated by the fact that so many people live at high elevations, which means it's hard to get water there. So Yemen has environmental problems, infrastructure problems, the problems of this, of governance the problems of capacity. But I still think that you can imagine how this could work. It's a beautiful country. You do have a large workforce. I could imagine ways to solve that equation, but I think you have to be solving the equation more broadly than just introducing security. There's an important economic piece and there's an important piece of making talented young Yemenis want to live there. And after the last decade, we're a long way away from that. Hmm. That's very interesting. Thank you, John. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Thanks Leah. Leah. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.